Welcome to the HW Shift podcast, episode seven. This autumn, we're doing a special series. We're exploring a bit about the intersection of behavioral science and digital technology. Specifically, we're looking at some important learnings from behavioral science about how to optimize digital interventions aimed at behavior change. So it might be an app aiming to increase medication adherence. It might be an online platform supporting weight loss, a virtual reality simulation, uh, training healthcare professionals on infusion procedures, or simply a mobile phone app looking at helping people do difficult behaviors like stopping smoking. As the second episode in this series, we are joined by Dr. Olga Persky, and she is an award-winning postdoctoral researcher at UCL. So Olga, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and where you work? Yeah, hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the UCL Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group, where we focus a lot of our work on digital interventions to help people quit smoking and drink less alcohol. But I also work closely with UCL's Centre for Behaviour Change, which is a an interdisciplinary centre that provides um, training, consultancy, and also do a lot of research into behavioural science and digital technologies. Fantastic. Uh, it's really exciting to have you on the podcast, Olga, because a lot of, for the listeners out there, a lot of Olga's work has focused on the area of engagement, and she's done a lot of academic work in this area. And it's not news to us that in order to get a behaviour change intervention to work, people have to use it. But what's really remarkable about Olga's work is that she's looked at the dual dimensions of what could constitute engagement from a behavioral science and human computer interface discipline, meaning it's not just simple time spent on the platform and depth of use, it could be immersion in the interaction and the mental state of flow. Even better, her work has been really wide ranging, but quite practically it helps us to think more rigorously and robustly about what needs to happen to drive engagement with digital interventions. And we're delighted to welcome her to the podcast and get her expert perspective on what needs to happen to drive engagement. So I guess to begin with, how did you get interested in researching engagement? Yeah, so that's always a good question. So I actually, during my undergraduate studies in Bristol, I was studying psychology and philosophy. I then kind of got quite interested in the use of digital technologies to provide mental health support but then also behaviour change support and because I'm Swedish I found out that actually in Sweden they were quite pioneering in this area already so I managed to get a research assistant job one summer in Sweden's first e-psychiatry unit which was based in a hospital where they were running quite a few different trials to test the effectiveness of computerized cognitive behavioral therapy for things like depression, insomnia and social anxiety. So that's where I kind of first saw digital technologies being used to deliver healthcare and also saw that um, for some people it seemed to work really well and people were really engaged whereas other people didn't seem to be quite involved. So I got really interested in understanding why that might be the case and whether or not we can promote it and then also thinking about you know for whom are these technologies really going to be helpful and then following on from that I then did a, a, an MSc at UCL under the supervision of Professor Robert West who was working on testing smartphone apps for smoking cessation and then I started thinking a bit more about the problem of engagement and found this quite interesting pattern in the literature where quite consistently across different technological platforms and different behaviours or mental health problems it seemed to be the case that there was this positive association between 
how much people engaged and how successful they were in achieving the outcomes. I was really intrigued by that because although one explanation is that these two things, engagements and effectiveness, are linked via dose-response function, so you know if you increase engagement then effectiveness goes up, but it could also be explained by lots of other things. So it could, for example, be the case that those who engage more differ systematically from those who don't in terms of their baseline levels of motivation or skills or for example when it comes to addictive behaviours perhaps it's the case that these people who engage more experience less severe cravings in the beginning uh, of a quit attempt for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah I became really interested in exploring these tricky things further. Wow, that's amazing. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about you and your history with um, the Swedish um, administration of cognitive behavioral therapy through technology and stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. And why do you think engagement is important to research? I mean, I think you touched on it already in your intro, because I think we can probably all agree that some level of engagement is going to be necessary for a technology to be effective. But what we don't know is kind of what, what level, what pattern, what intensity of engagement is going to be required. And it's probably the case that that differs across people because of things like information processing, prior knowledge, um, levels of motivation. Um, so it's quite, quite tricky to, to work out that problem. And I also think another key reason why it's really important to study engagement is because I think by using scientific methods um, where we, for example, randomise people to receive or not receive different components, I think we can really do, do a good job at trying to pull kind of all of the evidence together and then try to develop, uh, develop an evidence-informed model of how we can promote engagement in practice. So that's really something that I think is important to, to work on because there's so much research going on and so much knowledge and learnings from different companies. But if we're able to take a systematic approach to this and kind of look at what worked in different settings, different platforms, then maybe we can start to understand whether or not some of these patterns seem to be more universal than others. Wow. And talk me through some of the work that you've done in this area. Yeah, sure. So I think I'd like to highlight two specific pieces of work. So the first one is a systematic review that I did um, with my supervisors as part of my PhD, where we were trying to combine evidence both from the behavioural science and health psychology and health services research literature and computer science and human-computer interaction to try to generate a working definition of what it means for someone to be engaged with a digital intervention. Another aim of that review was also to try to map out all of the different factors where there's evidence or where people have hypothesised that there might be a link between those factors and engagement. And then also third aim of that review was to try to understand the ways in which engagement may be linked to intervention effectiveness. So I already mentioned kind of the dose-response mm -hmm. relationship, that's a possibility, but we're trying to see whether any other patterns had emerged. So what was interesting was that that review then led to us developing a two-part definition of engagement, which you already briefly mentioned in the introduction. And we proposed, based on synthesising the literature, 
that engagement is both a behavior so it's something you do you kind of you have to read stuff you have to click on stuff mm -hmm. that can be summarized perhaps by the time spent but then also depth of use so uh, the number of components that you access during a login session but it's also a subjective experience that's characterized by things like focused attention interest and potentially also some other effective components like enjoyment and I've also done some work trying to test whether that definition seems to do a better job at predicting things that we're interested in such as whether or not people come back to the technology or not with let's just say not 100% success because it's quite tricky but yeah, so that's kind of one big part of my work. So you're saying engagement is something you do, but it's also something you feel. Those exactly. are the two kind of dimensions. And yeah. you were doing work trying to see whether, whether that was what's driving the outcomes. When people feel engaged with something, they feel like they're getting benefit out of it. They feel like they're getting flow, that they are more likely to have the good behavior change outcome or the desired behavior change outcome. Yes, and also if we think about it, I think it's quite straightforward as well that we can have a scenario where someone opens up a website and if we only look at the kind of behavioral metrics, it may look like someone is spending 30 minutes on that website. But if we then pay attention to what's going on in terms of are they focused? Are they actually reading the material? Are they trying to understand it? then that's probably going to be a better predictor of you know what they got out of it yeah. rather than purely the time spent. To tell you very briefly about some of the research we did to try to validate this definition was that we developed a self-report questionnaire that tried to tap both the behavioural components and the experiential ones. Mm. And there were some methodological caveats and it's always a bit tricky when you're trying to develop a new measure. But the key finding that came out from that was that this scale did seem to be underpinned by two separate factors mm. that can be quite um, distinct from one another. So it's possible to spend time on something without paying attention, mm -hmm. which I think that theoretically we can think of that happening, yeah. but we were able to show that uh, mm. with the scale. And then also the key factor that seemed to drive whether or not someone re-engaged later on was the experiential mm. subscale. And we can think about explanations for that. Maybe it's the case that having kind of a, a salient memory of something being interesting or engaging does make us want to come back. Yeah. Um, but we're probably not going to have a memory of how much time we spend necessarily. So that's just one plausible explanation. I think, yeah, for those interesting. Findings. And I think yeah. that's probably something we can all relate to in that we've all experienced having an app open and realizing that you've just sat there with it open and not even really been looking at it or just mindlessly scrolling, I think, is the effect that we can all relate to. And similarly, we can all relate to a really good engaging interface and a you know, really nicely designed app giving you just a, a nice warm fuzzy feeling that makes you more likely to use it again when, yeah, you might not even be cognizant of how long you were on it. So that's really interesting that you were able to actually prove that. Yeah. yeah. And then just to point out something else that came out of that systematic review. So we also spend quite a bit of time trying to generate a conceptual framework of factors that seem to either hinder or promote engagement. And in the conceptual framework, we've got things like the content uh, of the technology and how that content is delivered. So whether or not it's personalized 
to the user in different ways, whether or not it's interactive versus static, mm -hmm. if it's delivered sequentially or kind of simultaneously. And then we also found that characteristics of the user, so demographics obviously, but then also more kind of modifiable factors like psychological factors mm -hmm. and then also environmental factors such as the immediate sort of environment that users find themselves in mm -hmm. seem to influence engagement. So it's quite a complex picture of factors that influence whether or not someone will engage. Yeah, and we're big fans of that conceptual framework here as well because it's such a lovely robust list of the factors that we need to think about especially for us in a market research context, if we're thinking about where and when and how and who is using these proposed technological offerings from our clients, that we can make sure we're accounting for those factors in the research and thinking quite realistically about how it's going to work in the real world. When you're conducting the systematic review and creating the framework, what surprised you the most? Was there anything unexpected that came up when you were looking at what factors related to engagement? Yes, that's a really good question. I think the key thing that struck me after having gone through all of that literature, and I should say that we included 117 papers in that review, Oof. and I think what struck me the most was just the complexity of this engagement crisis that seems to be unfolding, and how many different factors are actually interacting to influence engagement. So even though we might be looking for simple answers, you know, is there one thing that we can do to increase engagement? And I think there are obviously some key factors that seem to be emerging over and over again, but I think we do have to acknowledge that engagement arises as an interaction from the interaction between things like the specifics of the technology, you know, the user interface design, what types of techniques are embedded, things like goal setting, providing feedback is a very key thing that drives engagement, but then also how the user responds to that will depend on their level of motivation, their expectations of the technology, yeah. and also things to do with the environment that they're in. So how much time they have, how if there are social cues to use the technology or not, or you know, the healthcare system that they're embedded in will also influence it. It is quite a complex picture. Yeah, and that is really tricky when you're thinking about then what advice do companies or individuals who are looking to design for behavior change or looking to optimize technology to maximize engagement, what do they do? It's like, well, you need to consider all of these different factors because they are so important. Yeah, or I think within any given project, we obviously won't be able to intervene on all of those different factors yeah. or change them. But I think the key thing is to be mindful of that even though we might be able to put our efforts into, for example, providing a new feature that's going to be really interactive, we still need to be mindful of that, you know, people might still not engage. But saying that, it's also important to think of things of both that kind of the average user versus kind of individual users. So it really depends on the aims of the project, whether or not we're just trying to find kind of an average increase in, you know, time spent or mm -hmm. something like that versus whether we really want to dig deep into kind of personalizing the technology for individual users. Mm, yeah, and I suppose those are 
probably commercial decisions that a lot of our clients can relate to about the practicalities of just making something that kind of generally is more engaging for the average user versus really optimized for most potential individual use cases or yeah. segments. Um, were there any things that you were pretty sure that you were going to be able to demonstrate an influence for, but actually there wasn't enough evidence for? So things that maybe common wisdom would say, oh yes, that definitely drives engagement, but when you look at the literature, it wasn't there? Yes, there was definitely a dearth of research looking into the more sort of environmental and contextual influences on engagement, which probably speaks to the fact that there's been more research looking into the direct influence of content and kind of ways in which we deliver that content mm -hmm. plus baseline characteristics of users but not really trying to understand how people engage in their everyday lives mm -hmm. so for example does it matter if someone is a commuter who spends a lot of time on the train every day is that a good time for them to be interacting with their fitness app or alcohol reduction app these kind of deeply situated studies looking at you know how people use these technologies in their daily lives that's that was really lacking yeah, yeah and that i suppose makes sense methodologically because like you say there's so many potential permutations of the environment much less keeping consistent the specific technology that they might be using and the social cues for that i if you are commuting and potentially overlooked by people or if you're on a night out and yeah you might be trying to reduce your alcohol or smoking but is it socially acceptable to be looking at your app for those things? Exactly, and I think this is also really important because as technology designers we might have a few different use cases in mind. We might, for example, have created some personas where we imagine that, okay, this person who's quite motivated to reduce their drinking, they're quite likely to, you know, open up the app and log the number of drinks that they've had either whilst they're drinking and they're out with friends or colleagues mm -hmm. or the next morning but then so i've actually done some research myself looking into more kind of situated use of mm -hmm. technologies where my participants told me that their patterns of use were quite different to what we'd expected when designing the app so i think that's really interesting as well to kind of think about Obviously technology is always evolving and we need to use iterative design, mm -hmm. but if possible really trying to understand how people are using these technologies and then trying to optimise for that rather than trying to sort of prescribe how they should be used. Um, I think that's probably a good way forwards in terms of promoting engagement. Yeah, and that's great. That really builds on obviously a lot of things from behavioural science about how it's easier to kind of substitute into an existing pattern than it is to create a whole new pattern habit around using this thing. Exactly. Where yeah. can you slot into what they're already doing or how they're already engaging. But was there another element of the work that you've been doing on it? Yeah, yeah. To talk about so, as well? so I've also been very interested in trying to kind of going from this conceptual framework and then trying to test out different components to see whether or not by manipulating different factors or providing different components does that lead to higher engagement mm. so i just wanted to highlight some a study that's actually hot off the press that was published this week um, in which we collaborated with the originator of a very popular smoking cessation app called smoke free mm -hmm. in that study we looked at whether or not the addition of a supportive chatbot which was underpinned by artificial intelligence would that lead to higher rates of engagement and then also higher quick success in smokers? 
And I also wanted to highlight the ways in which we were able to experiment in this study, which I think might be relevant to people working in this space. So because when we have a new feature, we don't really know what direction it's going to go in. So it could be the case that it would actually lead to worse outcomes. So we actually only randomized 20% of new users to receive the new component. So we had kind of a oversampled people who received standard version of the app. Mm -hmm. But because of the popularity of the app, we had a nice big sample of over 55,000 people who were randomized in this, in this study. And what was really interesting is that we actually found that at a one month follow up, those who were randomized to receive the addition of this supported chatbot, that actually led to doubled rates of engagement as compared with those who were in the control group. And there was also some low quality evidence that it improved quit success at wow. the one month follow up. So I think those results are quite encouraging because, well, obviously the next step is kind of to do some more qualitative work to try to understand what may the potential mechanisms be of this new chatbot. Mm -hmm. So is it the case that because it's just more interactive, that kind of drives engagement? Or is it that perhaps it leads to a perception of supportive accountability, you know, that you're mm -hmm. actually accountable to not probably not someone but something mm -hmm. or you know what is actually going on here so i think that's quite interesting very interesting and what kind of things did the chatbot do like tell us about can you tell me about a bit about the chatbot yeah sure so the chatbots it's been designed to be very supportive and i know that the originator of the app david crane he spent a lot of time kind of trying to think about the language tone of the chatbots and i know that he's kind of incorporated parts of himself into the chatbot even, so it's quite personal. So it's quite funny and and friendly and what users can do, so it's kind of, it works like a, or the setup is kind of like a text message conversation mm -hmm. where users are able to ask for advice. So there's particular sections where you can ask for advice about if you're experiencing a craving or um, things like that. And then the chatbot will kind of either provide some advice from other aspects of the app but kind of provided directly within that chatbot interface mm -hmm. so that the user doesn't have to go anywhere else to find nice. it or providing kind of funny gifts or just quotes and things like that and saying things like don't give up you can do it kind of motivational statements yeah that's just a brief description yeah no that's great and it's interesting i guess you'll be able to at some point dig into as well whether the nature of the content that they requested whether it's just support and like relief in gifts or whether it's information and the the correlation of that with engagement and success rates absolutely yeah i think there's wow. a lot of stuff to be done there absolutely. a lot of data to analyze yeah yeah absolutely Given all of your work in this area, is there anything that you consider kind of gospel that you see companies and apps get wrong? Yeah, so, well, I'm not sure that companies do get this wrong, but I think something that I'd like to emphasize that's consistently sort of come out of the research that I've done or that others have done in this area, I think is the importance of users' expectations at first but then also about their kind of perceptions of the usefulness of the technology and also the perceived personal relevance of the technology. So the way that those terms can be defined would be that, so the first one is kind of the belief that the, using the technology will actually help one achieve 
a key goal or a few different goals. Which is really, really important because if I don't expect something to be able to help me achieve what I'd like to achieve, then why should I use it in the first place? And the second one about perceived personal relevance would be more to do with that the technology is kind of speaking to me and my unique situation, which may well be evolving over time, which is quite tricky to, to cater for. But I think those two things um, seem to be very important and they're also quite tricky to change. So if, for example, there's a person in the room with the user when they're first presented with a new technology, there's probably more scope to work with those different perceptions or beliefs. But if you imagine someone downloading an app from the App Store, the app has a very limited time frame in which it's able to kind of either impress or not impress the yeah. user. And I think that's something quite tricky that obviously it's very relevant for kind of the first, first use or uptake of technologies. And I think that's something that many companies will be wary of already that obviously first impressions really do matter. But the trickier thing is kind of to do with this more sustained engagement where the user actually needs to, to have the belief that it's, it's going to help them, which is kind of similar to, I suppose, medication adherence or, you know, um, adhering to any treatment. Mm -hmm. So I think one potential solution to this, which I'm sure that a lot of companies are doing already, would be to actually involve users in the design of these technologies. And what I mean by that is not so much to have users kind of inform the actual features, but really trying to understand users' goals and their needs and their perceptions. And that can be very tricky because often when we try to get people to take part in these co-design or participatory design sessions, we often get people who are very interested in the technologies. Yeah. But if our clientele or kind of the target population that we're trying to help are people who may not immediately be that convinced that the technology is going to be useful, I think we really need to understand what drives them, what are their goals and how can we better support them. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, That and, and we certainly face this in a market research context, that the people that, that are very keen to get involved in the interviews are the ones that are very interested in this area. But especially if you're thinking about creating a technological solution, if you're creating a whole app, if you're creating a patient support program, we see a lot of that development happening. The idea that actually you create this with the really motivated population for the very motivated population is a real risk. Absolutely. They're really over-representing the potential likelihood of the wider population to engage Absolutely. With and I also think there's something to say as well about the different methods we use to kind of try to understand what's going on. And often we try to use quite explicit methods. You know, we use interview techniques, focus groups, but I think or drawing on behavioral science, that tells us that actually often it can be more useful to triangulate these more sort of conscious, you know, verbal statements from, from our users or potential users with more observational findings where we basically try to, to understand what people do unconsciously. Yeah. Because that's something that I found a lot in my research as well, that w when asking people what they think would be important for them to engage in the future, so kind of prospectively sort of mm -hmm. imagining what would happen. People say very different things to when you interview people after they've dropped out yeah. uh, or disengaged. 
So that's also really interesting, trying to sort of really triangulate findings to understand what's going on. Particularly to down-calibrate people's expectations about how much they would really do and how much they're really interested in. Completely agree. I think it's so critical to, at the very least, triangulate or downweight with behavioral science, but ideally have some kind of analog of another app or service that is with the same population to see what really happens with people. Yeah, exactly. And also when you see it on paper, you see it in a mock-up, you see it in an initial prototype, you think, oh, that could be really cool, maybe I would use that, but could be and maybe <laughs> are not usually particular hallmarks of yeah, that, that person will definitely be engaged in that service. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So what's next for you? What, there's so much, there's so many possibilities and so many different directions with this. Where are you taking it? Yeah, so I think we've by no means kind of solved this engagement crisis as I'd like to refer to it as. And I think there are two particular parts that I find very interesting personally. The first one is kind of this idea of highly personalised and adaptive interventions. And that comes back to the issue of perceived personal relevance and perceived usefulness. So if we can't really support users and make them feel that the technology is directly speaking to them and meeting their evolving needs, we risk losing our, our users. And that's also been the promise of digital interventions. You know, that's the kind of power of technology to use artificial intelligence or your supervised machine learning, less mm -hmm. fancy, but kind of to, to really try to personalise. And I don't think we've yet delivered on that promise. Yeah, so that's really something that I'm hoping to, to do more work on. And I also think that what's really fascinating about that is that when trying to design these solutions, we really need to draw on expertise both from psychology, behavioural science, engineering, computer science, human-computer interaction. So it sits within this wonderful kind of nexus of interdisciplinarity, which I find very fascinating. So I think it's also potential there for creating something that's going to be sort of greater than the sum of its component parts. Mm. And then kind of a second sort of path that I think is really interesting where there is some emerging evidence that it may really help to to promote engagement is the idea of hybrid interventions so actually not removing humans from the equation completely which i don't think was ever the idea of of digital health yeah i mean it might be in some context where there really aren't any funds for kind of having any personal contact human but i think there's some really interesting evidence that in some contexts, some technological platforms, it can really help to have either a supportive, trusted healthcare professional or a peer involved, and that will actually really help to drive both engagement and effectiveness. Mm. So I think those are kind of the two main streams of, of research that I'm really interested in exploring further. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I have a couple of follow-up questions to those. One is, in relation to the kind of interdisciplinarity that you referred to, how easy is it to get behavioral science, engineering, and computer science to speak similar languages and kind of get in the room together, or I can imagine, I just imagine it's quite challenging, and I would imagine that's kind of one of the main hurdles to making that 
dream a reality? Absolutely, yes. Well, so so I kind of started working in an, in a very interdisciplinary context as part of my PhD. So I'm already quite used to having to sort of bridge between different worlds. And I think, yeah, definitely language is a key thing. I would actually say that the, the main thing is to kind of to motivate people to work towards a common goal. Mm. And what we find is often, particularly across different scientific disciplines, is that people are contributing to different literatures and generating different kinds of knowledge. Mm. So I think the key there is really to either make it very clear that you know, there is a health goal here, or sort of the key contribution to knowledge won't really be in the field of engineering, but it'd be really useful to apply some of the knowledge there to a different context. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's more on kind of the scientific side of things. From a more practical perspective, I think we see this more and more in startups in particular, but also across different, you know, more established companies, that people really do see the value in interdisciplinarity and that we, you know, in order to address these kind of complex problems, we really have to be creative and draw on lots of different skills and expertise. I'm hoping to be one of these kind of advocates for interdisciplinarity and trying to find ways to, to kind of bring people together in that way. Yeah, that's really nice. And I guess the, the counterpoint to the challenges of it is that also it's a real ground for learning. I think, in, and again, we've only ever seen this quite superficially in the market research context, but seeing the technology companies and the pharma companies and user experience and behavioral science coming together, we all are interested to learn what the other perspectives are bringing in, what expertise. So it does also open the door to a lot of potential professional satisfaction and learning for the people that get involved. So it can be quite motivating as well as quite challenging. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. My other follow-up question was just about the hybrid interventions with um, actual people and as well as the technology. And I completely agree that I think that's such an important need and that we're not just looking for technologies that replace the human interaction but that there, we can sometimes turbocharge the power of interventions and just a, a slight comment that from our research we see a lot of particularly healthcare professionals this is one of their main bits of reticence about recommending apps to patients is that they're worried about the content of the app they're worried about what it's going to do and whether the patient is going to go away from them and just in, engage with technology and not get their true kind of expert opinion and support. So I think it would be very kind of welcomed from a healthcare professional perspective in what I've seen from healthcare professionals' testimonials. But in thinking about those kind of hybrid interactions, are there particular barriers that you encountered or is this kind of, are you at the beginning of this journey with the hybrid interactions and not really able to comment at this point? Yeah, well, I would just briefly address the first point that you made about that there's a bit of a, a worry that there are so many different apps and websites out there and not all of them will necessarily be safe or evidence-based and might actually have some severe uh, side effects and I think there's some brilliant work going on there in the regulatory field where um, there's a big drive both from public health bodies like Public Health England, NHS England and NICE but then also commercial companies such as Orca who are really trying to make progress in kind of the regulatory field thinking about what sort of minimum standards for privacy and security 
uh, are required, but then also looking more to the evidence-based side of things. So before healthcare professionals can feel comfortable recommending these technologies, then what's sort of the minimum level of evidence required in order to do that? And that doesn't necessarily mean that there needs to be a big randomised controlled trial underpinning that technology, but there are different kinds of evidence that can be drawn on to make sure that the technology is or does seem to engage the target population and that it's not kind of differentially engaging different groups of people. Mm -hmm. So thinking more in terms of equity and the digital divide there as well, but then also any kind of side side effects. Mm -hmm. So I think we really need to kind of watch that space and what obviously contribute to it as, yeah. as well. And I also think that that's going to be a key thing for companies as well, that, you know, in order to be taken seriously on the market, there will probably in the future be things like kite mark, mark, uh, marking and sort of, you know, having a seal of approval almost from a public health body, which can help generate usage of that technology. And then on the second part, if there are any kind of barriers to these hybrid interventions, I think, although there is quite a bit of research out there that's been looking at, you know, adding professional support versus not having it. And I think at the moment, I've not seen that much research coming out from the sort of healthcare professional's point of view. So mm -hmm. I think it's more the, the focus has been on the user experience where it seems to be going in, again, coming back to these individual differences that maybe on average it does help to promote engagement, but there also seems to be some individuals or subgroups of users, they really don't want that added support because mm -hmm. it might feel like a bit of a pressure, kind of external yeah. pressure. And, you know, from the healthcare professional's point of view, I think there's obviously a bit of research looking into this where some clinicians, practitioners feel that, you know, that's really helpful because it's sort of bridging the gap between sessions with patients. But I, yeah, I really think there's more to be done in yeah. this space. Great. Well, this has been so great to have you on the podcast, Olga. Thank you so much for coming and for speaking to us and sharing your wonderful expertise with us. I'm sure it will be massively useful to all of our users. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me.